tetragrammaton. for my birthday was 30 years ago. You mentioned that. Yeah, and um, I was turning 30, and I could do anything I want for my 30th birthday, and I was working on Chili Peppers' album at the time, and Anthony said, I'll go with you wherever you want to go, and I said, well, Nine Chanel's my favorite band, let's go hang out with Trent. And we came to New Orleans. The only time I've ever been in New Orleans was to visit you there, and you had a studio in a, was it a mortuary? It had been a funeral home years past not chosen for that reason it just happened yeah just a lucky coincidence that's crazy 30 years ago yeah how long were you in new orleans for i moved to new orleans 91 i believe i'd been living in cleveland and cleveland was about an hour and 45 minutes from where i grew up and it kind of was a city with the strongest magnetic pole nearby and that's where the band launched out of and i had an opportunity to work in studios and kind of hone it was a place you wanted to escape from you know and i'd come up with a plan to early 20s realizing i know what i want to do but i don't know how to get to where i want to be you know Cleveland served its purpose for five or six, seven, eight years I was there. And when the band got signed and we started touring, we toured for pretty much a solid year and a half from beginning of 90 to fall of 91. At some point I came back to Cleveland and it was winter and depressing and the front door of the apartment was open when I pulled up. And Bad sign. It was just, it felt like the city... I think I was hoping for some sort of hero's return, which it wasn't. It was the opposite of that. (laughs) And I thought, you know, fuck this. And I'd just seen the country for the first time ever. And New Orleans seems like such a weird and foreign place to what I'd grown up with, just through tradition, the way it looked, everything, architecture. Had you been there before? Just on tour, going through town and just saying, "What, what in the world kind of place is this? And... I didn't have any home really at that point, so I, I just drove to New Orleans and found an apartment and, and ended up enjoying living there and stayed there for 13 years, I think. And did you move to Cleveland from Pennsylvania for like a step up? It was like a moving to a bigger ta- bigger community? What was the thing? Where I grew up is a little town called Mercer. That's about an hour north of Pittsburgh, and it was... You know, there was one school. That's where you went. The school, <laughs> two traffic lights, in Amish Dutch country. You know, remote. And what it kind of ingrained in you was a sense that you belong here, and you're not going to get out of here. You know, not fully defeatist, but you could see your path ahead of you. You could see what ten years from now look like when you're in high school. You know, you, the the signs of giving up and resignation and a job that wasn't really what you wanted in a mortgage and that's what everyone was that's my family didn't have 
We didn't have any money. You have uh, brothers or sisters? I have one sister that's five years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And when I was five, my parents split up. And for whatever reason, I went with my mom's parents. So I, I, I was raised with my grandparents. My sister, who was just born, was with my mom. My dad was out of the picture. And, you know, this is in a town where the you could drive from one side of the town to the other in five minutes. So we, we'd see each other, but I was with grandparents. And I think some, I mean, as I've looked back at that time, it wasn't unhappy, but it, it infused in me something that said, you're not really good enough, you know, and you don't really fit in. And that's, I fight that as I've, you know, matured into something else that feels much more confident in a lot of ways. At my core, there's still a, there's a voice in there that's saying that, you know, I felt it walking in here. Wow. You know? Amazing. And it's not from not being loved or any shit like that. It's just. Do you think it's the place or the nature of what happened with your parents to analyze where it's coming from? There's probably some abandonment issues in there. There's a sense of if you want to get somewhere, you have to figure out how to do it yourself and Mm -hmm. get there. Self-reliance, I would imagine. My grandfather, who I love more than anybody in the world, who lived to be 99. Great, great person. But also was a very conservative in terms of not his worldview of his life actions. Take the safe route. Provide. Don't take the risky job. Frugal, but but happy. Do you feel like he was afraid or just content? I didn't sense fear from him, mm-hmm. you know. No, I mean, pro- probably content. Like there was an interesting thing that happened years later. Now I'm living in New Orleans. I'm in an, a, a nice house uh, in the Garden District, and the ridiculous community of the Garden District has a uh, an event once a year where they, I don't know if it's a fundraiser or what it is, but the, somebody's house gets chosen, and then all the kind of old money ridiculous characters that live in the garden district come by and so good friend of mine it's like a mother figure of mine down there was connected in the town and hey we're gonna what why don't we do it at your house and let's just do it up you know and so we did and i invited my grandfather to come down and i got to see a side of him i hadn't seen before which was like trent i don't know what would a that's that's not my kind of people well how would i fit in you know i said look Fuck those people, you know? It's our party, you know? I brought him down. We got him a tuxedo. Felt confident. And, of course, he was the life of the party, you know, and had had a good time. But witnessing that made me think about that transferred into me in some some fashion. So What, What I'm hearing is, like, he saw himself as an outsider in some way. I think so. Uh, I never saw that in him growing up, you know, Um, but as I've wondered where some of this comes from, I I would imagine some of that got transferred. But to get to your point, uh, Cleveland, I wound up in Cleveland because no one in my family has ever gone to college. And by the time 
I was smart in school, but I, I kind of lost interest in that. I was more interested in playing music and trying to figure out how to express myself. And I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a band and I wanted to be on stage. And But there was no, there's no clear path of how one would attain that. There's no one you knew. You didn't know anybody that ever had made, got on the other side of the TV set, you know. So I went to college for a year, kind of close by to where I lived yeah, for computer engineering because I'm good at math. And I thought, well, maybe I can design recording consoles or some fucking thing that, you know, of course I don't want to really do that. And I thought while I was in school, you know, I, I was around people that really loved to do calculus all day, you know, and were into it. And I could do it, but I don't love to do it. You know? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I need to really kind of figure out, I, have, I need to actually try. I need to, when I'm 30, I want to, at least say I gave it my best shot. And then I know, you know? And anyway, that led me on a path that I wound up in Cleveland because it was kind of a, from my limited experience in the world, it felt fertile and there was some people doing some interesting things and it was clubs to play in and there was original bands performing and felt like something, you know? And it was easy to get to and I wound up sucked into that scene and, that's how I wound up there. Do you remember what the music was that you were listening to back when you were at home with your grandparents? What was the music that made you want to make music? Yeah. I think when I was five, my grandma kind of made me take piano lessons. You know, you know a kind of shitty upright piano. that, And it didn't take long before I could tell I was good at playing piano. And, and I could, it triggered something in me where I felt connected i felt like i felt a sense of worth from being able to play well and within a few years let's say by the time i was 10 or so 11 my piano teacher i was studying with just down the street you know was um you might want to consider getting tutored and considering becoming a concert pianist you know which would mean a lot more practicing and dropping out of school perhaps you know if you want to take this serious i think you have what it takes to and that didn't sound like any fun <laughs> you know because around that same, i was probably a little bit older it was girls were becoming interesting and the record in particular that the band kiss seemed like too good to be true you know <laughs> it was exciting it was taboo it felt larger than life it felt i didn't know you could do that you know it felt like you might get in trouble if you had the hotter than hell album and it's everything were you, about were you like 14 13 like that i must have been it's about puberty it's in 13 ish yeah. right right in that range yeah. it just clicked that i want to be in a band i want to do that Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get enough music. You know, it's strange to think about how we consume music back then, you know, the choices that one made. I've, I've got, I'm able to have these physical records, which is how I'm going to hear music other than FM radio mm -hmm. that I'm going to tape on my cassette tape player, mm -hmm. you know, and the choices one made. And I, and I had a life-changing experience. National Record Mart was the the store in the mall that was 15 minutes away from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I'd love to just go and 
remember walking in there and hearing hearing something that was like, what is this? And it was Frank Zappa, Sheik Your Booty album had come out, right? Filled with profanity. And and they'd put the cover of the album they're playing up on the counter when they're playing it. And it just felt like, I don't understand what I'm hearing, but wow, man. <laughs> if I could just get that out, but it was a double album, you know. And the joy of discovery, the joy of commitment, you know, mm-hmm. bringing something home and then spending time with it, thinking about it, not being overwhelmed with um, content or information. I I didn't know what most of the artists looked like that I even liked, you know, but I knew what the inside liner notes were. I knew if someone wrote something etched on the vinyl, you know, that canvas of of enjoying art, I miss. You know, it had a big impact on me because it was yeah, me too. That's all I wanted That's to do. That's all we had was yeah. that narrow little sliver. Yeah. And like just these little bits of information is all we had to go yeah. on. But it was enough, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I have the Hotter Than Hell album, but my friend has Destroyer and let's let, let's swap, you know, and, yeah. and all that stuff. I, I, I look back fondly at that era of appreciation and how much it shaped me getting stuck with an album or Columbia Record Club. Mm-hmm. too good to be true 13 albums for you know never mind you're going to pay twice the price for if you forget to send the card back in you know <laughs> which i did but i i remember getting a billy joel album that i didn't want you know 52nd street but i listened to the shit out of it because i'd paid full price for it you know and, and i liked it you know <laughs> I, I drilled it into my head yeah probably um, made you a better songwriter yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, there's some Barry Manilow's in there along the way, all kinds of things that I think in today's era of hitting skip, you know, or shuffle, you, you miss that learning curve. You know, a lot of my favorite albums I didn't understand at first. first you know, yeah. I don't know if I would spend the time now, you know. And would you play along, like if you heard something you liked, would you play along on the piano, learn the songs? Yeah, my dilemma at the time was. I was a keyboard player. I was always, I never studied how to play guitar and my brain doesn't work that way. I need linear makes sense, but you know, frets are, it's another dimension that doesn't <laughs> quite resonate. And, you know, I played saxophone and I played piano and I didn't have access to a synthesizer yet, but the idea of electronics work was exciting to me. And I think that what, my dad came back into my life around around this time. And he had played in country rock bands. And that was always something that was exciting to me. I could go to band practice once in a while and watch what they're up to. And what did he play in the band? He played fiddle and guitar. <laughs> what was it like when he came back? Well, he never really left, but his role in my life changed. And, and I can't say it was, wasn't fatherly as much as it was kind of uncle, kind of big brother. He was young when he had me. So mm-hmm. he was 17 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we are good friends today. You know, he's provided that catalyst thing that's shifted my trajectory over the years. But he bought me an electric piano, a Wurlitzer. So that, often with a distortion pedal, an MXR distortion and a phase shifter, that was my 
<laughs> that was my rig, you yeah. know. But I noticed if you played fourths and stuff and put a fuzz pedal on it, it sounded, you know, sounded kind of tough. You know, it had a energy to it. I was more excited about rock music than, than say, Super Tramp, which I also did like and do like. But I was fascinated with electronics, you know, and when a band like the Cars came along, that, that I thought married clever, great songwriting with interesting use of keyboards that I hadn't heard before, not just in a playing a pad behind shit, faking strings, but as a lead instrument sometimes and part of a puzzle of arrangement that I, I thought was really exciting. That led to, while in high school, getting a great present of a of a cheap Moog synthesizer. And then I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew it, I wanted to make music that could have the aggression that I liked of rock music, but incorporated in electronics somehow. I think a little bit later, huge thing happened when I went to college. You know, I was only 45 minutes away from where I grew up, but there was a college radio station there. And it was right at 1983, you know, when if you liked electronic music, synth pop had exploded. You know, there was a hundred bands I'd never heard of before. and Like Depeche Mode and... Uh... Depeche Mode to XTC to... Heaven 17, yeah. just a lot of shit Lock that of was, seagulls. There, there all was that stuff of, that yeah. ranged from kind of corny and poppy to the world of literate college radio, you know, beard scratching type, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I, I couldn't, it was almost too much to take in, you know, going from a 25 record collection to having your mind blown by all this music, you know. And I got sucked into playing in a band in college where I was just the keyboard player that could sing some stuff. And some. this is strange. To, I feel defensive even saying this, but in that world, if you were in a band, you played cover songs and you played in places, you know? So we played cover songs. And it was honing chops, but it wasn't songwriting. And yeah, it, it but was, you can get good playing playing cover songs. Certainly learned a lot, and you know. Absolutely. Unfortunately, some people did have video cameras back then. (laughs) But anyway, it got me to a point over the next few years where now I'm about 22-ish. I'm living in Cleveland. I'm working in a shop that sells synthesizers and drum machines, hearing people make noise on that shit all day and then going home and trying to get excited about Wound up getting a job in a recording studio from a guy that I was selling gear to in the store. And it was just a rinky-dink three-person operation. And the deal was I could stay up all night if I wanted to after they were done and kind of learn how things work or work on demos as long as I'd do anything else, you know. So I was an expert at wiping pee off the toilet seat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> waxing floors and again if you didn't want to do it i'm I'm the guy but i i had kind of mythologized prince at that time and was heavily into 1999 era kind of purple rain was coming out or had come out 
And at that time, he was playing mostly everything himself, yes? Yeah. And, and it instilled in me a sense of... One of the things I marveled at with him was how realized he seemed as an artist. And I could identify a song of his by the guitar playing or the vocal or the drum program. You know, he kind of felt like he... It may not be virtuosity in all those things, but it was in point of view. And around that same time, I was being, I was realizing I'm wasting my time playing in other people's bands because what I'm really doing is trying to appear busy, a recurring theme in my life, avoiding something that's scary because I'm afraid. You know? And what I was afraid of then was finding out that I don't have anything to say. <laughs> like, I, I know if I like something or don't like something, but something my piano teacher told me, you know, that haunted me in a way, because I hadn't really thought about it, was, you know, great, a great performer doesn't mean a great artist. A great, a great executor doesn't mean a great composer, you know, and I, it's obvious, but I hadn't really thought of it that way. And then part of me was thinking, what if I find out I'm a shitty writer, you know? And I thought at the time, if I do find that out, then maybe my lot is to be an executor. You know, maybe I'm a performer, an interpreter. Maybe I'm a, I don't know. But I, yeah. I didn't want to find that out. So yeah. a way of not finding that out was not finding out. You know, just avoiding it by yeah, yeah. feeling busy. Anyway, I started to think I could recognize I was doing that. And thought I'm working at the studio I have this opportunity I've got a 24 track tape machine vague idea of how it works you know there's a room full of keyboards here and I can't find anybody really that I can't find that you two other three people that become the puzzle you know the chili peppers the rolling stones which I was, which I wanted because it would also made it easier I thought you know, yeah. and it would have felt like I found a club finally that I haven't been able to find, and I couldn't find anybody. And I thought, well, Prince can do it. Fuck it, I'll I'll try to do it. And through trial and error, it started to take shape into something that felt like it revealed what it was I had to say. How long did it take before you started feeling like this is something, or did you did you ever feel that? The first things I tried writing were shitty. And they were shitty because I was posturing. I, I, was, I wasn't being honest with myself, and I was trying to play a role, and I was put up a shield, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write political clash-like songs. Because I like the clash. I don't really have anything to say or even care that much about, you know, deeply on an on a experiential level, you know. And obviously, it sounded like that. <laughs> and no one heard these things, but I, I knew. And I think a really pivotal thing happened where I, I'm in Cleveland. I was playing in a band called Exotic Birds. It's all original material. I didn't write any of it. And it was, I, I thought it wasn't bad at the time. But I was getting frustrated with just the band and it wasn't what I wanted to do really. And I, and I was, 
I, I've got to do my own thing. And when I said that, the manager of the band at the time had become a friend, John Mall. He said, I'm also going to tap out because I'm, for whatever his reasons were, felt like it ran its course. And he said, just please keep me in touch with what you're up to because, you know, I think you have talent. And as I was working on these songs in the studio at night, and I had Chris Frenna, who was my good friend, right-hand man, drummer, confidant. We weren't sitting jamming together, creating music, but it could be, does this suck? No, it doesn't suck. That's all I needed. <laughs> or, eh, kind of sucks, you know. Yeah. Friend with taste that you thought was at least yes. give you some barometer kept me sane yeah and was a good friend and and did have good taste you know it was his insistence of i remember when de la souls three feet high and rising came out you know he was working at a record shop and he brought it home because he, he'd get promos of everything and we put it on and we're looking at each other like what the fuck is this is this this could be the worst thing i've ever this they can't do that can they what's that a fucking you know a french demo of some sort there you know like you're not allowed to do that you know it, it puzzled me in a way that was but it was him saying you know what i listened to that record again without you man i'm gonna put it on we gotta listen to that again you know and i realized you're right man that yeah i, I, I didn't understand it you and know? didn't have any context for it that's the beauty of the early hip-hop stuff it's yeah like it really did come from outer space you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you can't do that you know yeah. anyway sitting in that studio there was another thing going on with me which was um just felt sad <laughs> i think it had been a theme in my life but it somehow had been coming to the forefront of like i feel i feel sad i gotta i have to get this out somehow and i realized i've been writing kind of journals you know not not as lyrics mm -hmm. just not so that someone's going to find them. I don't know why I was doing it. I just, and then as I looked at them, I realized they are lyrics. <laughs> but I could never play that for somebody, you know, because that, yeah. that wasn't a character. That no, wasn't. And that was really personal. Yeah, that was, you know. I thought, as an experiment, let me see where it goes. And I remember something I could never have was one of, the, one of those songs. And I don't even know if I let Chris in there when I was singing that one, you know. But I had goosebumps when I was working on it, you know. And it got to a point where that and a couple other songs that were in that realm of, I think these are really powerful, but I can't let anyone hear them, you know, because they feel too intimate. And, yeah, it's so vulnerable. And... um I gave him to John, and then I'm like, okay, see you. Like <laughs> I had to leave, and he immediately got back to me. It's like, this is power here. This is this is this is it. You know, whatever you're tapping into, that that's what that has truth to it. And you no, know, I realized it too, and that kind of became the internal blueprint. With I'll deal with exposure at a later point but let's just see where this leads and that's what led to the idea of nine inch nails and certainly the first album and that 
whole time was about a year. First song to maybe 18 months, something like that, of refining things, trying to figure out what what the project has to say, what my role in it, how how naked am I in there? You know, and I felt like, I kind of wish I was Gene Simmons, you know, with a costume I could put on that felt like armor that I could, you know. A mask to hide behind. Yeah, because where it got uncomfortable then, well, I'll jump past the point of getting a record deal and going to war with the producer I had on that album and then turning it in and having the record label say, this is an abortion, <laughs> you know. And without, you know, I, yeah. I believed in it, but yeah. I have never put a record out. Of course. You know? And was there any point during the process from the complete vulnerability and uh, discomfort with how vulnerable it was, yeah. as you got deeper into making it, was there a point where you felt like not thinking about how people are going to react, not thinking about how how it gets dressed up like Kiss, but I'm on to something and this is getting good, and did it get easier to do as you were doing it or no? Was it always a fight? Once that initial spark happened, I think I've cracked the code yeah. of what it is. This is kind of what it is, you know? Then... It was wildly exciting because now I have an idea of the shape of, of yeah, what the you're form not, you're is. not stabbing in the dark anymore. Not as much. And now I can try edges and kind of see where it starts to, yeah. what feels right with this, not blueprint, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, sense of, I guess the second guessing got a little easier because I thought I'm going to lean into this thing and yes. I'm going to see where it goes and I'm going to, I learned at that point there's a time for being editorial later yes. not not right now yes. you know that that all felt exciting you know but it was always on a layer of thin ice because all of it is a construct in my head yeah. you know there is no audience yeah and there's and no songs coming like every week or like how long would it be between songs at that time that's every couple of weeks there was a new starting point but what what I would do unlike what I would do now, is thinking back to that first album experience. Yeah. What I didn't have was someone like you in my life. And what I mean by that is a nurturing, roll with it, mentor, you know? Helping you, helping support you in making the best thing you could make that was the thing that you wanted to make, the best version of it, and give you the confidence to go as deep as you could go into whatever that thing was. That's exactly right. <laughs> what I had yeah. was a version of that with John Malm, my mm -hmm. first manager, who was not coming at this like, how can we maximize profit and audience and commerciality? Nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Do what you need to do. Let's, you know, pointing out that is the shit, lean into that, yeah. fighting to try to find unsuccessfully the right home for it but no understanding of how to go about doing anything or you know so anyway around how the songs were coming i remember when i met you a while later 
and it was tips on strategies. Keep writing, write lots of songs, write stuff. And so and so has a hundred songs that's always waiting. I thought, hundred fucking songs. I've written fourteen songs. You've heard all of them. Twelve of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. You might have played thirteen and fourteen that night too. <laughs> yeah, because because uh, yeah, maybe that's true. And I would refine and refine and refine rather than you, you know what I mean. I, yeah. I I didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You I wasn't were thinking more, in terms obsessively concerned with any little tweak you could do on one yeah instead of thinking well i could write five more songs and maybe one of them will be even better than this one i won't have to tweak it like you never yeah. know until you till you get all of them out i hadn't even thought about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> you never know you never know yeah do you remember at that time was the music the thing that led it in other words would you have a musical track and then see which of the diary like words would work or did it ever start with the words there were usually two things happening separate and then at an unknown moment it wasn't i can't remember it ever being kind of a planned now's the time where i take the ideas and match them up so you'd be writing poetry essentially yep and then you'd be working on instrumental tracks yeah seeing what was exciting in the world of music because i was also that that was also an unknown yeah. I didn't know if it was, like I said, I didn't have the band that was helping to find that sound. It yeah. could, could be anything. And at some point, if somewhat organically, as I recall, there would be, hey, that feels like it goes with that. And I think subconsciously I had been thinking that, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't. But not didn't know you were thinking about it. No, later in life now, I've done much more. The thing I have, the thing that feels strange to me now is... Um, not to jump ahead to the that's fine feel free to the later stage we have no rules i work with atticus a lot and a lot of the what it allows me to do is there's a mode i get in where i'm not thinking i'm in a zone and i'm i'm not being editorial consciously i'm not analyzing what's happening i'm just kind of feeling where i'm at mm-hmm. a lot of times we'll do this with films where what I find exciting about working on film as a side job is here's a scenario that needs to feel a certain way. I like kind of inhabiting where where I think that character is. And it's refreshing that it's not me. It's not yeah. my voice. Yeah. It's not my story and a variation of the same story or something. You know, yeah. Here's the guy over here. Feels like a new thing or a person or whatever it might be and just being able to kind of social network with fincher when it was presented to us as a job with no formal training in how to score a film i've seen a lot of films i know i don't like the music in a lot of films and some i do and some i don't most i don't even pay attention to i'm just kind of lost in a film i think you know what I know I don't know how to do is score an eight second scene of someone walking upstairs. I don't, is that a chorus? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that a melody going there or yeah. should it need to be in time or, you know? And what was fun to do with that project, having no idea how to approach it. And here's a film that's not about vistas and 
battles and outer space journeys or canvases where lots of sound can sit. It's just people talking the whole time, arguing. And I don't know how to, I don't know even how, what music would, is there even room for music in there, you know? Once you started thinking about, hey, that story could be about a guy that believes in something so much that he, and feels he's justified in doing it, kind of fucks everybody over because he really thought it was the right thing to do. And then it's kind of left feeling, you won, but did you win? I kind of know what that feels like. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I can relate yeah. to, yeah. I didn't make Facebook, but I, I, I know around that feeling. Yeah. And then trying to make music not thinking just from a place of what comes out instinctually, that's wherever it's coming from. It's a long-winded way of winding up to say this. A lot of times what Atticus can do, particularly in the film side of it, is be the guy thinking and paying attention to what note you played and what phrase was better than what other phrase. And it allows me the freedom of getting lost in the exploration as the composer, as the subconscious turning stuff out. Because mm -hmm. normally what would happen is F in the world of film or even writing songs a lot of times what i'll do is just jam with myself often playing something and picking up another instrument without stopping the tape or a computer thinking i know this is going to go with the thing i just did even though i'm not hearing what mm -hmm. i just did mm -hmm. and we know each other enough to know now we don't really have to talk anymore we can kind of sense or he can see me circling around an idea until I kind of get around it and then I'm moving on to something else and I know he knows I'm gonna we mean to put these together or mm -hmm. try it it's nice after doing that for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half at one chunk to walk out of the room and sit outside for a minute or go see my kids or change the scene come back and it's starting to, someone's already moved pieces around, you know, mm -hmm. rather than, mm -hmm. okay, now let me sit back down and, yeah. you know. You're not starting from scratch. And one could say that's the role of an editor, but it, it's more than that. It's a ranger and it's also, it's a collaborator in a way that goes beyond. Yeah, and he's picking, you know, he's, yeah. he's making the choices. Yeah. Cur he's curating your performance in a way. And I'm trusting his choices yes. because we know each other. You yeah. know? And How'd you meet him? 30 years ago-ish, John Malm signed 12 Rounds, which was his band with his wife, to Nothing Records at the end of that little tenure, late 90s. And right when I had gotten sober, and I was, the world was raw and different, you know, and a little uncomfortable initially, he and his wife came down to do something with 12 rounds and we just kind of in the studio i felt like someone i could communicate with in a way that and also on a friendship level we had we're not from the same lifestyles you know but we just had a had a something clicked and anyway that led to i was going to work on try some Nine Inch Nails stuff and had him come down as a kind of the guy sitting in front of the computer and, and, and doing essentially what he does now with me. Um, but we just have a mutual 
friendship and respect. What was the first album you worked together with him on? Would have been With Teeth for, for Nine Inch Nails. I remember at one point, relatively early in our relationship, we were with Zach from Rage, who would come to work on his solo stuff with us as kind of the foils. And that, that was a, it was a good bonding experience for us because it was a scenario of madness, you know, in, in a, in a yeah. fun to look back at way, but frustrating in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was educational in a lot of ways. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Zach, but I could see. I could see my traits in him, where mm-hmm. I could see it in him, mm-hmm. and then I'd think, "Christ, you know, that's frustrating." <laughs> but I would recognize after he left. No, I'm doing the same. I'm doing my own version of that same thing, but I, I didn't see it as clearly. You know, mm-hmm. fear-based. And I'm not saying anything dismissive of Zach, but at that time. I want to do something that doesn't sound like Rage Against Machine. Okay, what about this? Mm, can't do that because it's kind of not what I do. Okay, how about this? Well, that's like Rage Against Machine. Okay, how about not that, then this? Yeah, but that's not like Rage Against <laughs> How about go surfing? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and let's not yeah, enjoy. You know. But I, I, I saw, I, I did a lot of the same shit when I'm left to my own devices. So the first album, you say it took, takes a, about a year, maybe a little more to make? I think it was being made while I'm figuring out how to engineer and put pieces together. So there's a naivety and a, you know, the, the tape's almost worn out by the time the song feels like it's finessed to the point and endless amounts of tweaking and revising not knowing any better yeah that gets to a point where i've got 10 songs i want to be on the album we now have a record deal with tvt who do you want to produce it you know in my mind producer oh that's going to be what you end up being you know cerebral thoughtful task master in a good way you know what i mean uh someone taking charge someone a a sounding board helping you articulate what you're trying to say Mm -hmm. and maybe nudging you into a place way better than you ever could have gotten your own that's what i'm thinking you know that's what i'm looking for you know i've seen names on albums and those albums i kind of like and that name's been on a few of them was it them? <laughs> you know what I mean? So who's the first I don't know anybody. One? I haven't yeah, met anybody. the first one? So I'd made a list of some people that were, you know, Flood was one of those names. Mm-hmm. Um, John Fryer was a name on there that did a lot of 4AD records. It had a spooky, reverby sound, right? And it wound up being that um, Flood only had time to do two songs, but he could do two tracks so I was going to go up to, for whatever reason, the car studio in Boston, and then right from there fly to London to spend the next 20 days with John Fryer in his studio and finish the album. So, and when you say finish the album, was this using the tracks that you had already recorded or yeah. starting from scratch? I've got my tapes. We're going to do whatever we can 
and mix yeah. two days a song. That's and what would you say was mainly done during that period of time? Was it more vocals or? Well, here's what was interesting. We go to the car studio, Synchro Sound with Flood. I meet him for the first time. I discovered him through Depeche Mode, Knights Reb. He is very cerebral, not as mentory, not as artistic. I'm just being honest, <laughs> as you, an engineer that has learned about arrangement, is tasteful. We're talking a lot about synth programming. He's excited about how I got that sound and wants to, but at the same token, can sit down. We did Head Like a Hole and Terrible Eye with him and sits down and says, to start with, bow down before the, that's got to go right at the beginning and that's the chorus. I'm like, that's not the chorus. That's a fact. Wow. Try it. You know, and immediately, it's like, of course, I've heard that 200,000 times, you know, and it never <laughs> dawned on me that that's hooky, you know? Yeah. So right off the bat was like, I went into these sessions like, I'm here to learn, I'm open to any idea, but I know what I walk out of here at the end of the day is what, I, what might be what I'm wind up with so i'm gonna get firm if i need to and with, yeah. with flood you have to you have to love it this is your record yes yeah, that that i haven't gone this thing. far for it to yeah. take a shit at the finish line you know and this you know this was you literally have two days a track that's all there is money for it's 45 grand that's your budget <laughs> so we do these two songs and i leave with them sounding a bit different than I'm used to hearing head like a hole particularly, but okay. Wow. Did you like it? I did like it. Yeah. And, and it was different, but it was, I knew it was right. You know, it, yeah. the end of that story is we went back and mixed head like a hole. just got a different mix, but not a different arrangement. It was mm -hmm. just the mix we did needed something. It was a little mm -hmm. sterile, but then I went to London and I didn't, get that same feeling you know and I, i'm i'm in london for the first time i'm across the ocean for the first time i'm by myself i'm trying to pretend i'm not freaked out <laughs> and i show up and i immediately realize i don't have any chemistry with the person i'm working with and it's a much more carefree now let's just see what happens you know while smoking a joint and put some sounds up and just put some noise in and Okay. You know, and it was about halfway through the second day when uncomfortably I have to say, listen, I have to love what leaves here. You know, I don't, this might be it. And you're going to do new, another record next week. I'm not, I don't think we should have reverb on that thing. Well, I think it's the best thing on the song. Fuck you. <laughs> if it's going to escalate to that level yeah. of just turn it down or I'll turn it down myself. Where did you get you know? the confidence to do it? It's great that you did and thank thank Because them. I I thought this is my only shot. Yeah. I believe in this album. Yes. I've instinctually guided the ship this far. Can yes. it be better? Yes. Let's find Maybe. out. Maybe I can't make it better. Of course. But let's see. But when yeah. I knew this isn't better. Yeah. And it also felt wrapped up in I don't respect your process for me. I don't, I don't believe we're having a uh, 
fundamental difference in artistic vision, I think you're being lazy. Yeah. And I think you don't give a fuck. And yeah. now I don't trust what you're saying. Yes. You know? So that kind of set the tone for that two weeks. And we did And you get, kept working together after that. I didn't have a choice. Right. Because I just talked the record label into me using this producer that yeah, wasn't yeah, the yeah. guy that yeah, did yeah. Fine Young Cannibals or yeah. whoever's at the top of the charts that week. You know, so I look like an... I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know? So we get it done. And the majority of the record is what we mix there. When we get back. I turn the record in. Now I'm shaking a little bit because of the process. How turn different in, would you say it was than what you showed up with? Marginal. More just Re mixing? Reverby. Yeah. The mixes are different because yeah. he could mix and I'm... I, yeah. I had my own thing, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's. So his sounded more finished, but it didn't sound finished in the way that you would have liked it to be finished. I think in my mind, I imagined the transformation that took place with Head Like a Hole, where yeah. there was some structural change. There was an outside opinion yep. that clearly was the right. Made it better. Mm -hmm. Ah, you know, it wasn't, there's a little more sizzle on the hi hat. Who gives a fuck? You know what yeah. I mean? It was subtle. The mixing changes were basically, I had done the work, just put the faders up. He added, the vocals level sounded more pro than what I'd done. You know, he knew how to use a compressor better than I did. You know, and I'm not being disparaging to his mixes. They were better than my mixes, but yes, they, yes. they didn't. We got into a tone where it became, okay, what do you want to do? Yeah. I'm going to re-sing that voice you mix and don't put too much reverb on that, but see if you can get the drums to sound better. Okay, that's kind of what it turned into, rather yeah. than let's see what we can come up with. Yeah. And I didn't want it to be that way, but... No, I understand. The alternative I'm was... I'm proud of you for making it happen. I didn't feel like I had a choice, you know, because yeah. I, I knew that could be it. Yeah. And if it is it, then I don't want to feel like well, it could have been better, but yeah, you know, I'll never see this guy again, which I haven't. <laughs> you know. Anyway, we get back. I get back. I probably spent five thousand dollars in long distance phone calls to my manager, saying, <laughs> crying. You know, yeah. I, I, man, this, this is not what I hoped it was going to be, and you know, I don't know. Anyway, filled with a little doubt now, back in the States, back home, turn the record in, don't hear anything for two weeks. Then I, clear as day, I remember for some reason I was back in my bedroom I grew up in, at my grandparents' house, landline, and uh, getting the call on like a Friday night, because I remember it was an odd time. I'm, I don't know why I was there, but I'm on the phone with Steve Gottlieb, and it's, I just got to tell you, Trent, I think the record's an abortion. That's, I'm not exaggerating. I think you've, I think you fucked your career up before it even started. Okay. This, this could have been a hit record, you know, but instead you're trying to make it fucking weird, and, you know, you've, you've submerged any chance of this getting played on the radio, and I really don't know what to even tell you. Okay. Well, I disagree with you. Well, and that was the that was the kind of crux of the thing. And then, you know, some some pretty 
sad conversations with my manager at the time, but but it was, you know what? Fuck that dude. We've we've assessed what happened in the mixes, and they're not. It isn't bad. It's better than it was as demos. It's, it's not some imagined thing that could have been. Mm-hmm. It's what it is, and it's and it is fucking good. So we asked, I think, for another five grand to see if we could mix head like a hole with a different, a little more exciting mix and something else we mixed to. Not reinvented, but mixed. Yeah, and. They agreed to put the record out, and that was kind of how, how the whole process started. Then <laughs> jumping ahead, paraphrasing what happened after that, our approach was we just want to work and try to get the word out because we think it's a great record. Some decisions were made about how to present the band live and how to, how to what recipe to put together that I think were wise decisions that made in terms of how it felt when you saw it, how, how we were going to play it, pull it off. Tell me about those. Tell me about those decisions. This record did not come about with people workshopping it and then recording it. You know, It was the opposite of that. It was workshopped with the instrument being the studio, trying to figure out what is it I have to say, if anything, and how to, how to emotionally convey it learning with the tools i had at my disposal which wasn't a great live drummer it was machines and that stuff so then i've got a record where one song is eight guitars and a drum machine the next song is no guitars and 15 keyboards and the next song is whatever it is who do i put on stage to what does that look like from the from the audience, you know? And I just told this story the other day because I did a thing for uh, Retrospective on Lollapalooza. And it reminded me of something that it was, a, for me, a pretty pivotal thing, which was when I was working on Pretty Hate Machine, and I may, I may have fucked up the timeline here, but before Nine Inch Nails is out playing live, and I'm trying to think about how to make it work in my mind. What I don't want to do is have someone faking playing drums standing up hitting a pad. I don't want to do that. I want it to feel visceral and I want it to feel like it can fuck up if it needs to. You know, it can, it can have some volatility to it. Jane's Addiction puts out Nothing Shocking. I had not heard the Triple X record before that. Chris Frenner brings that record home right after De La Soul. Let's check this out. Hmm. I don't know. Kind of retro-y. Kind of fucking weird. Kind of cool. Kind of... I'm not sure. You know? It was in that phase of the first exposure, right? Yeah. It sounds weird. You know, it sounds cool. But is it, is it cool or is it, you know... Now, also, as I recall... They're on Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers is really pushing the shit out of this band. And I, it was the opposite of what we had, right? And they're going to be playing at the club downtown Cleveland, Peabody's Down Under, and it's subsidized by the record label. It's only five bucks to go see them. Motherfucker. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm jealous of that, you know? Yeah. All right, let's go see them. And it was at that perfect time where we heard the record a handful of times, enough that we're familiar with it, don't quite get it. Not in an avant-garde, I don't understand it way. Just I'm not, I'm not, I don't know yet. 
it reminds me of something that you told me. I'll get to in a second. Standing in the middle of the floor, it's a club, they come out. It was so fucking good. I mean, it sounded great. They looked like freaks. Perry was hypnotic and in a weird trance. And it, God damn, you know, I'd look at Chris and he's looking at me like, defeated in a good way you know like just yeah. utterly inspired inspired in a all right i'm coming at it with a little competitive like you know and it, it's okay that's where the bar is in terms of we have to be able to make an audience do that yeah. not, not with the same rules and yeah, yeah, levers yeah. but yeah. it has to feel as vibrant and as dangerous and as volatile and beautiful is that it can't be a fucking tape playing back it has to have that thing that makes it you know and that became a kind of thing we thought about quite a bit in terms of uh when i say me chris and i figuring out how to pull it off and the decision was made to have a drummer playing real drums and have a guitar player but keep that aspect of the sound that we like which is the mechanized sequence rigidness the purposely non-human bit of it and the easiest way to do that would just be put it on a track of tape so it's two things can break the tape or the tape machine it's not a computer and a fucking bullshit right drummer has a click there's a playback track of sequence live band let's try it and and that recipe I thought worked really well. What was on the tracks versus what was played live? Was there any redundancy or no? Usually it would be, you know, head like a hole. Sixteenth note sequence. What we didn't want to do is, you know, you know when you see the the hip hop act at the awards show and there's a sixty piece fucking band with a horn section and live drums and it sounds like shit because it's not the loop yeah. you know it's not gritty it feels yeah. pro and it yeah. feels stupid you know we didn't want that feeling i remember seeing howard jones or something that did the same thing where it's like here's a track that sounds cool because it's three synths playing and but now you've got the world's greatest session drummer and you know it's background water, singers and it's just shitty thing. and that's not what the song is you know the choice of having machines on the record is because I like the way the machines sounded. Yeah. You know, part of it was I didn't have people, but it became the it machine became, was what it, it gave the music a personality that was different than if it was people playing. And if that has that rigid 16th note thing, I'd make sure what's around it is in conflict with it or interacting with that. It's intentional. You know? There also wasn't anyone else making alternative rock music in that way if you think about it wasn't like the, the the music that was being made nobody was making it like you were the people who were making music like you were were prince and the depeche modes of the world but they weren't competing with jane's addiction it was a different thing and from what the stuff i was listening to aside from those the, the more heavier electronic stuff where you could pick up the inspirations and the lifts they weren't writing songs you know they were doing a thing it wasn't about not being a song so 
all those Billy Joel albums and <laughs> shit. <laughs> they worked their way in over the years. Anyway, the band turned out the way it did. And what I found as we started playing live was, to my amazement, the songs could adapt into a... They got more visceral. They got angrier, generally. Some of the arrangements on the album, listening back after playing for a few months, felt... And I wish I would have had the band to play before we did the record, because it would have sounded differently. It was differently, incredible you know? live. I saw you at that point in time, and it was in incredible it was fun and it felt like it felt real it felt like i could think through the recipe to set it up but it had its own validity you know it felt like the right thing at the right time and it also powerful. had a in terms of stagecraft there was production as well that didn't feel like the Howard Jones example. In some ways, I remember the first time I saw you when you got big time production and I felt like, well, I kind of miss the DIY version because the DIY version was so radical. Were you shooting like, um, I mean, it looked like uh, fire extinguishers or like what, it, it, I don't know, like it was, whatever it was, <laughs> It didn't look like normal special effects at a concert. It all just seemed completely out of control, broken stuff. And it was wild and great to watch. Like it might be bad for you. Yeah, it felt like that. It was certainly bad for you on the stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it, it was fun. It didn't feel like... Uh, it took on a life of its own that I, I, it was a pleasant surprise. It was pleasant to see the songs adapt and get a little more muscular and also strange and exciting to see them transformed into things people are screaming back at me. You know, and it means something to them. That, that was one of the coolest things of seeing, you know, being somewhere you've never been before. You know, we, I never went anywhere being Tulsa and just some big dude, you know, I don't know what it means to him, but yeah. it authentically has <laughs> touched a nerve there, you yeah. know, just like music has done for me my whole life. Anyway, with the what wound up being during the course of Pretty Hate Machine touring, almost two years of circling the country and the world a couple times, it felt like we, we bludgeoned it into people. We we'd found an audience by presenting it to people in a way that could make its own case didn't rely on a marketing of the record label you know and i'd hoped at the time that not to rub it in their face but just like look it did work can we move on but it turned out to be the opposite of that you know oh it did work now we can let's put a zero at the end of that next time let's let's start talking about who your new producer is you know that's when you came into my life and well you were in my life but that's when it was time to i can't risk trying to keep this from fucking up again you know going through that process but anyway it resolved itself but i think the lesson the main lessons learned from that whole my whole career was just standing up for 
what you have to say and expressing yourself in a way that feels authentic. And, you know, I, I can say completely these days, you know, if you like what we did, what I've done, it's what I want it to be. You know, it was the best thing it could be in the various incarnations and whims I've been on. You know, it's never felt compromised by anyone's hand other than my own taste at the time. I worked with a couple of people who will remain nameless, and I'm sure you have too, that say, oh, fine, I'm glad we did this record. I finally have something I feel proud of. Are you not proud of, you know what I mean? Like, not to sound like an asshole, but I've never put out something I didn't think was the best thing I could do. Why, why would I think it, it's worth wasting anyone's time or investing anyone's time on? Yeah. So how did the second album differ from the first album experience? Based on the experience, based on the success, what changed? Yeah, lots changed. And, you know, toured forever on the first record. Towards the end of that tour, it was bittersweet because it felt like the battle that's raging on the record label front could be a terminal one, you know. I'd made a stance that I'm not going to record another record for TVT. I'm just not going to do it. And it wasn't out of greed. It was just, it felt they were activated now and excited about now we're really going to get successful. So I couldn't have a partner that I felt was actively trying to do the opposite of what I'm trying to do. And integrity mattered a lot in that era and where things showed up and how it was shoved down your throat mattered, you know. I think it still does, but in a different way, you know. And I didn't want to risk the idea of Nine Inch Nails becoming something that was disingenuous because it was shoved out into the world in the in the wrong way. If that makes any sense. And recorded the second thing, the EP, Broken, which was really just a reactive, how can I make the angriest thing I can possibly make, right? And how can I take the aggression that's missing from the first album that was harnessed in a live environment, turn it into something that's a statement, that's concise and just a thing. And worked on that with Flood again. And we kind of did it without TVT's knowledge. And in the meantime, Jimmy Iovine manipulated his way into the situation. Now get now you're on Interscope. Who's Interscope? <laughs> you know. I was mad. I wanted to be with you. you know? And I was a real asshole to Jimmy initially because I felt like all I want to do is be just leave me alone so I can make music. You know what I mean? Of course. I I I, I don't I want to be it, fucked it with. Really you know? did. Um, I felt like every conversation we had back then it was almost never about music it was always just about this situation this situation and it really was the bane of your existence yeah it's strange now to even think about it because it but at the time it was i know monopolizing you know yeah. and it felt very omnipresent uh, like a specter over everything like yeah. the, at any minute the plug's gonna get pulled and it was all a dream and you know yeah. but um to Jimmy's credit, much to my surprise, he became a great partner. <laughs> what do you want? 
I, what I'd like to do is deliver you an album with the artwork finalized and you give me some money to make it. That's what I want. Okay, what else do you want? And I want, I want a label I could sign some other acts. Okay, what else? I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Just for real? Okay. And um, meanwhile, I had kind of come up with an elaborate plan for a record about a thing with an arc and a kind of storyline to it. And I had a ridiculous kind of flow chart of here's thematically things I'm going to discuss on the album, not songs, the album. Here's where it's going to go, the trajectory of the kind of character. Here's musical things I want to touch on, not from stuff would, I've written. Would you say, a, would you call it a concept album? Yeah. I mean, I, I was in, using that language myself, yeah. you know, just to think about it. And I thought, I'm going to make this thing, and it's going to tell this story loosely, and it's going to touch on these themes, and it's going to have this, and it's going to have that, and here's musical things I want to be influenced by. And okay, now, let me start writing all this stuff. And I had a little money to set up to get an act actually good quality samplers and some stuff that was inspiring. And I talked to Flood about working together again and thought, let's set up in a house and do the whole romantic thing probably from you you know <laughs> let's 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 make it not feel like you're at the record plant fucking around but let's in an environment and then i'm sitting with that notebook and i'm living in the house with gear in it chris running in the guest house and ideas feel fertile and there's lots of words coming and there's lots of musical ideas coming and it felt like it's hard to even keep up with what's happening. But what isn't coming is the added pressure. Pressure may not be the right word. The, the added desire to funnel all that into this equation I've written out of here's a cool song that feels exciting. Something needs to sit in that second slot where it's more up-tempo, you know, but the words that are fitting with it aren't it felt like it's trying to serve too many masters and starting to get it's starting to step on unbridled inspiration instinct you know because i'm trying to place it in this grid that seemed too complex so a few months into it i thought all right fuck that whole idea i'm just gonna make songs that sound good to me and exciting and again it never felt ominous or unfun it felt like i'm got a new laboratory and it's exciting and i have this new specter of there's an audience now you know and i know you know this feeling well with various artists where first album no audience no expectation you know other than your own and maybe your labels now more people than I ever thought know Nine Inch Nails and like Nine Inch Nails, you know. And then there's times when it creeps in your mind, what do they like about, you know, are, am I going to serve another helping of that up or is this too, am I getting away from whatever, you know, is ACDC making a disco album, you know, because yeah. they think it's cool, you know yeah. what I mean? It wasn't overwhelming as I remember at the time because I'd just done that broken EP, which was, 
a kind of it's not pretty hate machine but it's just an ep you know there might still be hope yeah, it was incredible <laughs> i remember i loved it it was a new thing that could haunt your late nights you know absolutely anyway back to the story when i after i'd abandoned the idea of a concept album and then just let things go for a while a few months later as i'm kind of looking at what's landing i realize it all fits into that grid amazing (laughs) almost exactly when you weren't trying to get it in i wasn't consciously even thinking about it you know but i I think of that master timeline song thing. Two things moved and everything sat right where it was supposed to. You mm-hmm. know, and, and then I realized, oh, I need one song now. And that kind of works with these lyrics I had over there. And that was a weird, interesting yeah, probably thing. Probably a to, great epiphany. Yeah. It's like, oh, it really it works. Yeah, not, <laughs> not forcing no, The thing it. you abandoned because it wasn't working was there all along. That's what I think about sometimes when I, because I've gotten older, when I mentioned being able to be in subconscious mode, whatever that is. Yeah. It feels like a real scene change to then say, okay, now, I'm not that guy right now. Now I've got to be the guy that has to forensically kind of arrange and make decisions and I'm leaning into it more, that, that role yeah, that I need. Is, and there, they are two different aspects of yourself. Yeah. One is the the free creative spirit who's working on instinct and um, subconscious energy. Yeah. And the other is the person who comes in after who's more like the professional. Like, okay, this part's really good. This is really good. This works with this. And it's a different, it's a whole different head. Yeah. But we have them both. You know, we can do both of those things. Yeah. I think what... I used to flip between them. I don't remember it being quite so. Yeah. I wasn't so conscious of the shift. Yes. You know, now it's more of a, I'd rather not shift into that. You know, I'd rather stay in as this guy for a while. Yeah. But at that time on, on Downward Spiral, it was, um, it all felt like it came together, you know. And I do remember turning that record into Jimmy with, you said I could do what I want. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> you know? And it wasn't to spite anybody. It was just yeah, like, this yeah. is what I feel like I need to do. And yeah. I don't think there's any singles here, you know? But, and he's like, well, but you're you've wrong. Been wrong before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was, a, that was a life-changing thing to have that record come out and strangely resonate as, as much as it did. And I listen to it now, and that's a fucking weird sounding album. Yeah, you know? it still is. It still is. It's great. It's so great. It's so personal and so different than everything else. And um, it's raw. I appreciate that. I think we skipped this, the part of the story where you came up with the name of the band. Yeah, there's nothing that spectacular about that, really. It's my, it was, it's pretty unsexy, actually. <laughs> it's, it really is just kind of grinding on putting things in a list that come from an unknown place and looking at them a couple of days later and 90% of them are terrible. The ones that can last, that one just, the more I looked at it, the more it felt like it's nice to say, it looks cool when you write it down, you can abbreviate it into something that makes sense, 
it kind of felt like it it's ominous you know in my opinion mm-hmm. I, i've heard every permutation of where, where it could have come from and religious or sexual whatever but it just it, it sounded cool it's really the you know i think i saw nin t-shirts before i ever heard the music i feel like they were just for some reason that t-shirt really caught people's imagination and part of that also was a conscious you know from growing up with kiss and bands with logos and stuff you could carve into desks and notebooks and that iconography it was always exciting to me i thought the idea of much like stagecraft you know i can appreciate the the pearl jam no bullshit i get it but i can also appreciate like fuck you know pink floyd yeah an element of it's okay to dabble in these waters you know that was always exciting to me to see if one could frame the music in a way that frame a live performance experience in a way that embellishes social network was the first scoring gig you did yeah and how did it come about the first proper score yeah i'd gotten a dreamlike call from david lynch when he was doing lost highway that resulted in a few days sound design and him visiting the studio in new orleans and being a huge david lynch fan the visit was everything you'd want in a david lynch experience you know <laughs> and wasn't real scoring though no. it was just some uh, a person he had worked with a long time sound designer had passed away and he was looking for some help on some certain things but it was interesting to see how he as a creative how big a role sound plays and how he tells stories it was interesting to see you know from a completely non-technical you know point of view <laughs> scribble something on a piece of paper i want sound like that okay <laughs> but uh I was friends with acquaintances with David Fincher and I'd met him through Mark Romanek and a fan of his work. And then we started getting calls. David Fincher would like you to score his new movie, but it was coming right at a time where, you know, I got sober in 2001 and prolific life change. And, aside from something I needed to do to stay alive, countless life lessons, the biggest one being, I don't know everything, you know? And it's okay to ask for help and be humbled. And I think the process of sobriety for me was a gun to your head of really assessing your choices and your life and what led you to decisions and your relationships and your bullshit. You know, the way you lie to yourself. And the uncomfortable process of going through that certainly has countless blessings that one can use past that and recognition of just being forced to work out some things that I think people that don't have to go through sobriety miss out on. I'm, I'm not saying I'm grateful I'm an addict for recovering. I'm grateful I'm in recovery. Given the choice to not be an addict, I'd prefer to not be an addict. But there's been a lot of things I've learned that have greatly helped me live a life that I feel good about myself today that 
came from the desperation of having to, that process. I mention that because being able to embark on and engage in a healthy relationship with somebody where you're completely honest and and not bringing into it your own weirdness and bullshit. When did it get really bad for how, me? How and when did it get really bad for you? I never set out to be an addict. <laughs> I never romanticized it. It wasn't, it wasn't, I had my first beer when I was 13 and I wasn't that guy, you know. I just felt like when I would be getting to know you, I'm in a place where I don't really know who I am and now I'm being looked at by a bunch of people in a place that feels uncomfortable and I'm already anxious and I'm not sure because I don't have that armor on because I'm not I don't have a Gene Simmons costume you know I'm not I don't have a story like Perry Farrell I was a male prostitute and I, whatever it might have been right that was a pretty cool story that I don't have that I'm a fucking dude from Pennsylvania you know I remember when I met uh, Anthony you know he seemed like he knew how to be a rock star, you know, or knew how to be himself. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm trying to figure out how to how to be human. Just be, yeah, yeah not too. be on fire I'm, when I'm in the I room. Felt, you know, I felt much more uh, in aligned with you in the way I felt feel in the world. So yeah. maybe why I resonate with the music so much. <laughs> so you see where this is leading. Having a beer reduced that by ten percent. You know. Oh. I don't feel as, you know, the, the intent was just to find relief from pain and anxiety. And, and the pressure of, now you have an audience, you know, all, there's so Am much. I interesting enough? What if they yeah. find out I'm not interesting? What if I'm, what if they really see who I am, you know? Yeah. And, that, and that could tie into that not good enough, you know, my own mythologizing in my head. It's connected to where I came from and it's because I was abandoned or whatever the fuck. But, mm -hmm. It came out in the form of, I like myself better with a drink, you know? And then that creeps into where it creeps into, you know? And it took a few years, but, you know, I'll be totally honest with you. There's things I feel ashamed of, you know? That time when David Lynch came, I wasn't at my best, you know? I wasn't me. I was a little fucked up. I wasn't a vomiting on people, you know, but I, I wasn't, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of that, you know, some, someday I'd like to, he won't remember or care, you know, but I'd like to say, hey, I, I wasn't my best. A lot of the times with you, I feel ashamed that I was in the state I was in, that I wasn't the person I wish you knew, you know, I was kind of the condition I was in, you know, I've learned that addiction is a disease and all that stuff and I'm, I'm not challenging any of that but i still feel ashamed of some of that shit you know my time with bowie you know ultimate artistic hero calls me up to tour with him fuck yes i would want to tour with you you know spending quite a bit of time together and him recognizing and big brothering me into Get your shit together. Wow. I was there. Wow. You don't have to be there. No, wow. I'm looking at him like, beautiful. fuck, man, he's got a beautiful wife. He's happy. 
he's telling me, this was the outside album, so 97 or something like that. Hey, I've got back together with Eno. We recorded a weird album. Nobody's going to want to hear this. I'm going to go out with a band and only play this stuff. I'm not playing the hits. Nobody wants that, but I need to do it. And I'm thinking, my whole adult life, I've looked at Bowie through the myth-making of how you hear about stuff as a guy fearlessly reinventing himself and, and unafraid of throwing away things that aren't broken to fearlessly try new shit. And I'm watching him do it in front of me. We're bigger than Bowie when that tour came up. He asks if we'll play with him. I say the only way we'll play is if we open for him. How do we make that make sense to people that come see us at the amphitheater, you know? Let's make a show that starts with a... I said, I'll give up my ending if you give up your entrance, and let's make it one show that goes from us to you, and let's make it make sense. And we'll only use white light, and when you guys come out, it'll feel, you know... And it was cool. It was a cool show. Anyway, I, I digress. On that, though, he was, he was a real inspiration. I'm seeing somebody that feels like they came out of something, and they're on the other side, and their life is good. You know, he, he genuinely was in a place where he's happy. He feels like we're going to play these shows and people are not going to like what we're doing, but that's what, that's what this is. You know, I need to do it. You know, yeah, I need to great. get this out. And I thought, fuck, great. would I have the balls to do that? I don't know. You know, I've gone and played tours where I'm playing songs I kind of am tired of playing, but I know there's an expectation, and that yeah. is that compromising or is that? I actually want to, I want to share this with you, and this can either be in or out if you yeah. want. But, yeah, but yeah. I do want to share this because it's interesting. I saw you play at the Forum, and I want to say it was probably 14, 15 years ago, something like that. And the show opened. Now, keeping in mind, 30 years ago, when I saw you, my favorite band, it was the original version of Nine Inch Nails. And this show that I saw 14 or so years ago opened with the original version of Nine Inch Nails. That's how the show started. And then it changed into different versions of modern production, all of which were incredible. There was a part where you were standing by yourself in front of a giant screen. There was a part where the instruments changed to electronic instruments. And at the end of the show, I remember thinking, and again, biggest fan, my favorite stuff was the early stuff. I felt like the show would have been better had that not been there, even though that was my favorite thing about the band. The older stuff. The old stuff. Yeah. It's like it didn't make the show better. It yeah. felt more like it felt like an obligation. Yeah. And I've actually been wanting to tell you since that night, yeah. <laughs> you have no obligation. Yeah. yeah. You're free. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's one of those things that if we're on the topic of how one presents the band when there is a... Uh, catalog and large amount of stuff i will admit i am torn sometimes about wanting to i thought about this on the way here like um 
usually when there's a scenario of a tour coming up, there's a discussion about what kind of venues, what kind of size, what kind of thing, you know. And in that discussion, money is part of that, you know, finances and logistics. And I think as a result of tuning into our audience, which I had done over the years, I'm, I'm consciously trying to do much less of, you know, I was, I was fascinated with when the internet changed the interaction between fan and audience. They saw a lot more of you, but you could see a lot more of what their feedback, what they're interested in, what they're not interested in. Not from a, how can I tailor music to fit what you, you know, Marvel fandom, not that. But it was interesting at times to see if we play a show at the forum. There's a lot of people pissed off because the experience isn't that great because it's the forum and it sounds like shit and mm -hmm. it's impersonal and you've had that experience mm -hmm. as, I, as I have. It's not as good as that club. Mm -hmm. If you play the club, you know, the other side of it. You get in, I get in, they don't get in and they're pissed off because they can't get in and now it's scalpers and there's a whole other world of fucking problems. If you play 30 shows at the club, then it's you're playing the show and you can see the same people in the audience every night and that starts to feel like, what are we doing right now? You know? <laughs> and it somehow, it's kind of a boring conversation. This kind of somehow zeroes out at, I tend to feel like if we're going to play a show, I want that show to feel authentic and feel real, but I also want it to not feel like a self-indulgent we know you want this. We're not going to give you that. We're only doing, because I've been to many of those shows too, where it kind of feels like I, I'm really not in the mood to hear another 20 minute solo off the new album that nobody really likes, you know, Rolling Stones. I don't want to hear the whole new album. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying it's uh, I, I get your point completely. I think the other, the other part of it that I would consider is, is there a way to never go through the motions of doing the song the way it was on the record because that's the way you did it and thinking more in terms of, okay, these are the songs I want to play. These are the songs that I want to play. These are, this is a group of songs that I think everyone wants to hear. Here's I want to find I a way now. to play these where it's interesting to me. Yeah, How can I reinvent the song to be true to who I am today? Yeah. And what does that sound like? And if you do that for a period of time, there'll be a time when maybe 10 years from now, you feel like, well, it'd be really fun to do it the old way. Like, like it would be new to do it the old way okay. at some point in time. Yeah. yeah. If you give yourself a break from doing it the old way. And you might really enjoy like finding a new way in. It's a great experience. I mean, it happened unintentionally with Hurt. Um, yeah. And I was going to say another, another version where that happened, which is interesting to me, I remember going to the Bowie show and um, you you had asked me to do a remix of one of the songs on Downward Spiral, which yeah. I did, and it was, you know, a very uh, contentious version. I, I would say I... It was I, great, uh, though. Well, but it was definitely... Um, Colored outside the lines. Yeah, bit. outside yeah. the line on purpose, because I felt yeah. like this is my favorite song on the album. Anything I do to it's going to ruin it. So I'm going to lean into that and just do something make something else because yeah. it's already the thing that it is is the thing that it is anything i do is not going to be better so it's okay so i'll be really free <laughs> and then when i came to the bowie show 
you played my version live and it blew my mind. I was completely unprepared. And it was the opposite of people love that song on the album. They, the audience wanted the real version yeah. and you gave them the ruined version. And um, it was fun. It really was. It really was. No, I, I, I couldn't believe it. It really made me happy. So I think you asked me, David Fincher, social network. Yeah. Anyway, I I had just, I was getting married, and I just finished a long tour, and I felt like I just promised myself I'm going to take some time and not fill the day with the next thing, you know, not rush into the next thing, which I tend to do all the time. And then the phone's ringing with Fincher saying, do you want to score this film? And he sent me the script, and I read it, and the script was great. And I just, I, this new adult version of me <laughs> said, I've got to live up to the promise I just made to myself. And I, I said to David, look, I, it's not you, it's not the film, it's not the material. It's just, to do this right, I have to immerse myself in it. I don't know how to do this. And I i don't feel like I'm in a place right now where I can give it my best. And if I do, I'm not being honest with what I just said I would do for myself. Please respect it. And I'm, it's not you. I totally get it. I totally get it. And then what happened? I get sleep for a couple of days and I can't quit thinking about that, of course, because I feel like I've let him down and I feel like I've copped out, you know. And a few weeks went by. And then I called him up and said, hey, one more time, I just want to reiterate. <laughs> it wasn't you, okay? And it wasn't the material. I just really didn't feel like I was able to pull this off. And I said, if it ever comes up again, if there's the next film, please keep me in mind. Because no, I'm, I'm still fucking waiting for you to do this film. <laughs> when can you come over? You know? And, uh, so funny. yeah, and I went and then we started. <laughs> The rest is history. Yeah. What was the experience like? I mean, did, did first of all, just from a technical perspective, does he say, these are the scenes I want music, this is where the cue goes, or do you watch the movie and decide where the music goes? With Fincher, and I didn't realize it's this at the time until I was around other composers a few months later in award season craziness that I never never crossed my mind it was even a thing you know but with fincher is really and still the greatest collaborator one could have in that area because he's carved out a space where he's fought to make sure that this camp of people that are making the film are not answering to producers or studios or any interests other than his which is let's make the very best thing we can mm -hmm. And the team he's assembled with his editors and sound guys, and they are great. And when you're around them, you feel like, wow, I got to keep up. Not, not in an intimidating way. In a, everyone's riffing off each other, and you're watching you this like thing get team. better and better. Yeah. yeah. And certainly there was a feeling of, I don't want to be the one that fucks the movie up because I don't know what I'm do <laughs> doing. But uh, what David will do, he started that process off saying, I'm thinking that it might feel a little electronic, maybe. And 
very, very few little breadcrumbs. And what had happened before, what led to him asking uh, Atticus and I to work on this was I'd made a record under Nine Inch Nails called Ghosts, which was just an experiment, which was I enjoy arranging music at times and trying to evoke emotional reactions, but the only time I get to do it is supporting a song and trying to arrange it in a way that sounds interesting. So I came up with an idea. I had Alan Mulder over and I said, let's just do this. Every day, let's make a new piece of music and whatever it is at the end of the day, we're done. This is an Eno-esque type of thing. Let's start with either a photo or a feeling or a phrase and let's just make it that. And so here's a picture of the end of a pier in a swamp in New Orleans and it's dusk and it feels Tom Waitsy and just feels kind of hot and humid and slightly sensual and almost menacing. What's that sound like? Not sound effects, but what, what, what would feel right? That, that We need to score that idea. Say a movie like David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers fills me with dread. I think it's a great film of just feeling like something bad is going to happen. Nothing good's going to come out of this. That feeling of dread, make a song for that. And it was just a fun thing that felt like no pressure. It felt the opposite of writing songs, where it's just experimental and it was a chance to try different canvases and play around in different areas that I wouldn't probably get to in Nine Inch Nails' normal songwriting mode. And put that out as a instrumental double album. That caught Fincher's ear, and he had tempted in some of that for Social Network. And because I said, why? Why are you bugging me to do that? <laughs> yeah. He's like, because you have the language of being able to emotionally enhance the story I'm trying to tell. I'm not saying make it sound like that record, but I can tell from these experiments that's the textures and the, and the emotional resonance I'm looking for. Then I'm faced with that dilemma I mentioned earlier of how do you score a thing with talking? And once I kind of realized, we, we tried this strategy. Rather than call up Hans Zimmer and ask him, how do you start? We, thought, we had a little time and we spent two weeks or so Let's think about this film. We've seen a rough cut of half of it. We have the script. We've talked to Fincher about what story he's trying to tell, the feeling he's trying to convey. He's not trying to make it feel like a, a comfortable college shenanigans story. It's meant to feel more important than that. Stakes, emotional stakes and gravitas is meant to feel a bit more weighty. And then I just started daydreaming and improvising and wrote about eight or nine, ten maybe, five-minute pieces of music that evolved. Here's, here's a theme that kind of goes from mild and benign to feeling like clouds are creeping in to something, whatever it might be. All of them had a kind of feel like that. You could put it on and listen to it and it felt pleasant and, and it didn't feel like a loop but it was essentially exploring different tonal variations of different musical 
things. And I sent that to him and I said, just see if this isn't for a scene. This isn't for this part. This isn't the whatever. But this feels like what I hear your movie is the world of it. And it's also testing him to see instrumentally, musically, tonally, are these things resonating? Some were more synthetic, some were more organic sounding. You know, just to see where... Because he's incredibly smart. He can, pretty much any aspect of making a film, he can tell you more about the lens of the camera than the cinematographer or the fucking, you know. With music, it's more of a shapes and he's not, it's not real specific in a good way. Anyway, we heard back almost immediately like, listen, I'm going to try cutting some of this into a film and in a couple days, do you want to come see a quick cut of it? It's going to have your music in it, though. Sure. So we walk into some theater somewhere. Where it's, I'm sitting right behind Brad Pitt watching a rough cut of this film with the music we just wrote kind of tried in different spots. And it was almost religious experience like to to hear and i know it's obvious but it, to be in the control seat for a minute and to hear something you did see how much it affects the way if something plays and the way the way you feel watching it i was hooked you know just with the making me aware of the emotional power of music and in in the role of a film where you're experiencing a thing to know how much you can control one response to that thing and how, how varied it can be by what goes in there was, was just exciting to see. And Absolutely. from that point on, then it became much more traditional. Now we know this kind of thing works in that kind of part of the film. Now let's get in and really start doing it once we had a, the breadcrumbs started to take root and seed. The, you know. the more often you do it, do you feel like you're always get better at doing it generally yes but what it's become you know we we did that film the process of doing it the pressure of being in a foreign situation with people who are great <laughs> and you like them as people and you want to keep up and then realizing you are keeping up and you're inspiring them and seeing it all come together on a film that is really good and also watching the film, Fincher has an uncanny way of, okay, he somehow managed to zone in on taking three frames out of that and tightening this one thing up and he's seen it how many hundreds of times and helped write it and filmed it and picked between 100 takes of that thing and composited this but still remains objective enough to incrementally nudge it forward to where undeniably it is getting better. And as he's dealing with you on this one scene, he's also dealing with the other hundred things around it. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Anyway, we finished that film and then weirdly it starts to get accolades. And then people are saying, you might get nominated for an Oscar. And I was like, it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. It's just like if you yeah. decide to run a race and you just won the, you know, yeah. how, can't it, be. it can't be possible. Yeah. I'm, it must be a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> it felt good through that whole process. But I think in 
as you endlessly had to promote the film and be in round tables with other composers that you know but know of but don't know and you're hearing how fortunate the an un, untypical the fincher situation is really reframed kind of experience we had it was it was great what it's become since then as we've had time to kind of think about do we want to keep doing this or what are we getting from are we trying to become a factory and just do as many films or what it comes down to is i really enjoy weirdly working in service to something yeah it's like also each one of them is a puzzle to solve so it's like exactly a, that yeah it's like cracking a code it feels good to crack the code whatever it is yeah for whatever it is and what i think about now when it's choosing projects is it's all about the person you're going to be, be stuck in a room with you know trying to figure it out and if you know them it's one thing that the last few we've done were all people we hadn't ever met before and they've largely been good experiences but and it's interesting to kind of psychologically understand okay the code is that director right yeah trying to tell a story I am a tool that can help shape it in, in a tremendous way, but trying to get past, trying to understand what they're trying to say, and then and then trying to do good work inside the confines of, make, you know, it, it, I find it, I wouldn't want to do it, only do that. And if I do too much of it in a row, I find now I really want to do something else. How different else, you know? is the process from from songwriting and how different is it when it's in service to something else and not you to me the hardest thing is the songwriting having something to say having something to say with truth that has that thing has that reason to exist rather than just a thing just a, just a exercise having to think about the multiple layers of like for a max martin or a songwriter i don't i don't know how that works and i i appreciate the craftsmanship of it like i've i've got five kids now <laughs> five and, yeah unbelievable and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me and i know it's a thing to say but it it's radically shaped every bit of who i am and why i do anything yeah. And the reason I mention that is for a while I've kept them in a kind of hermetically sealed away from pop music and because I think it sucks generally. I I have thought that for whatever reason. And I, and I realized about a year ago that's not fair. And they're not away from it. They're just I'm just not playing it at breakfast and I'm not in the car. I'm I don't have on radio stations, you know. And I heard my daughter, who's six, singing Dua Lipa the other day. She's so into it, and it was so cool. <laughs> like, this is her music, you know? This is her thing. And I've kind of turned on and immersed myself in just what's happening and out in culture now, you know? Yeah. And there's no reason to bring all this up other than it really reminded me that the art of writing a well-crafted song when it i teared up listening to uh 
Dua Lipa track the other day because it was just a really well done piece of music. You know, it was yeah. clever. It felt good. If I was in the and demographic, to, it is hard to do. You know, it's, it's a difficult do. thing yeah. to do. Yeah, and this is how I got on this. I don't know how to do that <laughs> because I'm when I'm trying to think of what to say or how to say it, I'm saying it from the unvarnished me. And that requires me thinking about who I am and where my position is now. And all of that together becomes something that feels stakes are higher. Yeah. It hasn't gotten easier over the course of your life? What's gotten easier in sobriety is not starting with this has to be the best song in the world or that ridiculous you know hey this might suck but i'm gonna do it today you know that that i can have fun with now but the feeling of in the back of my mind there is a if this is ever meant to be out in the world before i start writing the novel i might want to think about what what do i think it's about you know what what might happen in it rather than just what comes out sitting down musically arranging stuff can come from a I, I know what's right, you know? I don't have to yeah. assess my thoughts on how I feel about a thing that's who I, who am I now? Is that who, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I've changed to, my perspective in the world has changed. Who often, and I have to think of this when I'm writing, am I being honest with who I am now or am I, am I in Playing an archetypal, yeah, yeah, the character I was, yeah. that I thought I was, or, yeah. you know? Not not in a crippling way, but just in a, it feels more difficult yeah. process. It requires you, more layers. Do you only write for a particular project? So let's say, I'm going to make I'm going to start a new album, so I'm going to start writing for that. Or are you always writing? When film stuff kicked in, kind of coincided with being married and then starting a family, and. I realized my, I can never just sit around and be. Uh, I feel like I've got stuff. I feel better if I've got some things. You know, they don't have to be big things, but just something. If I had a day off with nothing to do and kids are at school or something, I'd probably find myself. Now I can learn how that drum machine works that I was interested in. Yeah. You know, that would yeah. be a fun thing to fill my brain with yeah. but what it, what it wouldn't be is what someone healthy would do to relax <laughs> whatever that is yeah I'm not saying i wouldn't go for a walk or something, but I, I feel like i need some something to feel like i'm getting stuff figured out mm-hmm. you know and when film stuff kind of came into the equation it was a chance to do a lot of composition that felt interesting and informative and educational and rewarding feeling like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing level emotionally without the anxiety of lyric writing. And I kind of felt nice not thinking about that. It's always a list of, as a parent, I find there's a never ending well, if I choose to look in there of what aren't I doing that I could be doing, should be doing right now, you know? How could I be more present with five of them, there's always uh, someone has an urgent need, or, or I can imagine there is one. You know, could I be a better parent? To, the answer always is yes. I can be. You know, could I spend a little more time 
And I haven't been beating myself up really about, particularly with the pandemic kicked in, you know, I, I thought, great, this will be the time I can really write that opera, you know. What I found instead was <laughs> I don't really want to do anything right now. I kind of want to feel okay and I want to make sure my family's okay. And it's great. That's okay. You know? Absolutely. You know, that was a that was a revelation though. Cause yeah. I, I anyway, I'm in a point right now where I'm working on some things that aren't music and aren't aren't scoring films but around storytelling just to see if I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know. One of the last times I saw you before this, I also remember feeling intense shame <laughs> that I'll share with you was with Larry Jackson for an Apple thing that was going on. Yeah, I don't remember that. Did your old house burn? My old house burned. So I was, it was at that house. We yeah. stopped by for a minute. For, well, I was working at Apple. Mm-hmm. Are you not working at Apple anymore? No, no, no. Just briefly, several years ago, one of the things I was daydreaming about, interested in how people listen to music and consume music, you know, because I think it's important, because I care about music. And Spotify was just starting out. Streaming was coming, you know, torrenting and stealing music was declining. Record shops are dead. The industry feels kind of dead. It's unexciting as a consumer. It's felt like if streaming becomes the new thing, wouldn't it be great if two things happen? One, the experience as a consumer could be one that's like going to an independent record shop where, how many times have you done this? I walked Find in with stuff. no real agenda and I left with my arms hurting because the bag's so heavy of shit. I didn't, I, wow, I can't wait to listen to this stuff, you know? I didn't feel that. At Spotify's homepage, I felt like I was at the mall, walking past the same shit that I would see the billboards of down going down Sunset Boulevard. You know, when I stumble into All Music Guide, and suddenly I didn't realize that guy produced this record, and he also played bass on that. And now I've twenty layers deep into an exciting tangent of connections i didn't even know or i forgot about that you know i want to hear that right now wouldn't that be cool if that could all happen in a place that's tailored to you that you know that that was thing number one thing number two a pipe dream wouldn't it be nice if musicians could get paid for, for making music instead of it being a lost leader to get you to buy a fucking toaster at best buy or you know, that, that line in the contract, future technologies that we'll make sure we'll figure out how to not pay you on, you know? Streaming of which has become that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, came up with an idea that at the same time, Jimmy was trying to make streaming service within the Beats ecosystem. It was a fun project to kind of work on for a year or so, just to see if I could even pull it off see what working that climate was like. Surprise, Apple wants to buy it, and now can you work at Apple to help them launch their thing with, with those two points you just mentioned? I could try, you know. I'm, I've never done that before. Let me see. And finding myself immersed in that 
corporate culture at the highest level, you know, where it, it's me versus the engineering team about fighting for things that matter with the, with the goal being an experience that feels, that elevates music into a experience I described. What it, what it deserves. What it deserves. It's not auto parts that need to be fulfilled. It's fucking art, you know? Treat it as such, you know? Give it a little reverence, you know? Things like, why can I not see the inside record sleeve of any album in 2023, you know? We've gone back in time. Could you not have someone scan that shit? Can you not treat it like it's, you know, as a small aspect of one of the many things missing from the experience you know treat the shit with reverence you know and i spent four years in various degrees of witnessing just it was educational it was interesting it wasn't music i wasn't being an artist i was voicing an opinion of artists in in a corporate environment i think i made some inroads but ultimately realized that you know if i wanted to make an impact i had to move there and full-time become that thing and nothing made me want to make music more than even thinking that and i felt terrible in the midst of that feeling for some reason we had to come out and talk to you about something about music and larry was there and we were talking and the whole time i just felt like i can't even remember it before i was drunk (laughs) now i'm in a fucking corporation i'm not an artist (laughs) <laughs> that's how my brain works i've never seen you in any light other than the most uh diligent and caring artist i will try to listen to that with my whole heart it's the truth it's the truth <laughs> anyway I never question it well i appreciate that yeah i'm trying something that's um weirdly enough when i tapped out of apple Six months later, there was something I missed about the foreignness of it, the 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 challenge. It's another riddle to figure out. Yeah, you know? great. So anyway, I'm working on some things that's intentionally cryptic that might scratch that itch, but be closer to the artistic world than supply chains and who patiently await. <laughs> How do you say your relationship to music has changed since? starting to make it to now you know from as far back as i can remember music was the the thing i could relate to and as i could play it or perform it it allowed me the vocabulary to understand how i feel about things and feel okay either as just being a person to understand how i feel or as someone that can actually create something that has beauty or allows me to get it out you know and the role music played in my life as just to help me understand listening to music as a fan of music was defined who i was in every respect being able to get into the game and make music and get it out to people every dream i've ever had fulfilled you know beyond what i ever thought you know because it didn't start with how can i get famous or rich doing this it was if i could just get on that stage and know what that feels like and feel what it feels like and it feels fucking great is what it feels like you know and sometimes it feels terrible and it's it's feels you know and i think as time has gone on 
as some things become less, some aspects of that become less exciting, endlessly touring, I don't want to be away from my kids, you know, not that much. Yeah. I don't want to miss their lives out to yeah. go do a thing that I'm grateful to be able to do and I'm appreciative that you're here to see it, but I've done it a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. I think where it is for me personally right now in the context of Nine Inch Nails in terms of an audience and the culture where it is and the importance of music or lack of importance of music in today's world from my perspective mm -hmm. is a little defeating, I think. It feels to me in general, and I'm saying this as a 57-year-old man, music used to be the thing. That, that was what I was doing. When I, when I had time, I was listening to music. I wasn't doing it in the background while I was doing five other things. And I wasn't treating it kind of as a disposable commodity. It was a thing that you... I, well, I, don't, I don't go into the cinema and do my taxes while a movie's playing. I'm there to watch a movie. And I kind of miss the attention music got. I miss the critical attention music got. Not that I'm that interested in a critic's opinion, but to send something out in the world and feel like it touched places. Might have got a negative or positive, but somebody heard it. It got validated in its own way, culturally. That feels askew. Like I can't think of any review I care about today that I even trust. I could write it before it comes out because it's already written. It's in, in fact, Chat GPT could probably do a better job, you know, or is currently I mean, doing it. Might a already job, be doing it. You know, that makes for what I feel is a less fertile environment to put music out into. Completely understood. in the world of Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, completely understood. I think that's where some of the excitement of composition and film has allowed. It's thrust me into places I wouldn't be with my band it's made me learn and be in awe of what music is and how powerful it is and how much there is to know about it and how much i don't know about it and i'm in, in awe of seeing these different ways it can affect you emotionally and techniques and sound and soundscapes and things i don't think i would have come across on the typical trajectory of being in a band reminders of what a fucking amazing form of art you know that i think naturally is just like everything in life taking a minute to appreciate i'm alive you know what i mean things could be much worse i've got many many things to be grateful for don't get hung up on this unimportant thing you know when i'm not sure if that connected necessarily but with music I've gone through phases of feeling kind of stale. Like I'm not thinking about it that much. It's just a, it's a thing, you know? I understand. It's it, the way it seems like at the time that you entered music, there was, you, you talked about the double album, the, seeing the, the Zappa double album. Yeah. You know, and wanting to have that and wanting to like understand what was going on there. Yeah. And we're looking forward to investing time in that experience. And now, just the nature, I think it's the nature of streaming, and it's there's good and bad to it. It's not all bad. There's yeah. good also. But it has changed that from the album 
that from your favorite group that you've been waiting for, that you listened to for months or years, becomes a thing that comes out and you listen to it for a week or two, and then the conveyor belt's always going by with something else, and it just moves on. So nothing seems to have the same gravitas of any, you know, the, the whoever today's biggest act in the world is, I don't know who it is, but it doesn't seem to have, the fact that I don't know who it is yeah. tells you, yeah. it doesn't seem to be in the culture in the same way. But that same thing has happened with, um, like I've, I've mentioned this story before, I don't think I mentioned to you, but when the, God, when the Godfather came out, everyone you knew saw The Godfather and it won the Academy Award for the best movie and it was an event. Or when Sgt. Pepper came out, everyone bought Sgt. Pepper and everyone you knew heard Sgt. Pepper and you'd hear it on the radio. Today, the Academy Awards, there, there are now 10 instead of five movies up for best picture. Chances are you and nobody you know has seen any of those 10 movies. None. Yeah. Not one. Yeah. So it's not just music. It's like it's just the way the culture has evolved where nothing seems to have that capture the imagination. I agree with you. I think some of that is the, the lack of monoculture things, channels, MTV, you know, a place where lots of people tune into a thing. Mm -hmm. I think part of it has to do with you know, to go really old school, when you when you bought an album, it existed somewhere. You see it, you encounter it, it's on your shelf. It, you know, the, when everything is now in the cloud and it's all available, and you didn't invest in it. I don't even mean money, but even time, or it's not in a, it doesn't have a place in your house. It's just a thing. It becomes less tangible, right? And it becomes easier to forget. Yeah. I miss the days, you know, like... I, I find myself in a place now where I'm not, I don't have a good place to discover new music. I used to know when the release date of all the things were. I used to steal stuff from the torrent site because that's, I wanted to hear it. It wasn't to save money. It was just, I just want to hear the thing. I'm excited yeah, it about it. It was hard know? to find. Now I don't even, I often don't know it even came out, you know. I don't like being in that place, but it kind of feels like, well, everything's sped up and... Um, it's just different. It's hard not to talk about this kind of thing and start to realize, oh, I'm becoming the guy that, you know, I'm it's, older. It's My not, perspective but, is uh, also but, different. But. I think it also is, yes, part of it's growing up, but as much of it has to do with the the way technology has changed, the way the culture works. It's just changed it. And the, on the good side is if you do go to all music guide and you want to go down that rabbit hole, now yeah. you don't have to go hunting for all of those things. You can just press a button and hear every one of them. And you can, I like the idea that if I, if something pops into my head that I can hear literally anything. And I, I love that experience. I was going to tell you a Shazam story. I, I love Shazam because uh, it's just a great, it's great to be able to, to find out what when something's playing. And um, yeah. I almost never Shazam anything on television. And I was watching a documentary a couple of years ago and at the end of it, music came on, it was really loud and it was really good. And, and I never even pay attention to music on television, but it was good enough. It's like, I got a Shazam, whatever this is, I have to Shazam it. And it made sense. It's like, oh, you made it. <laughs> it turned out it was well, something was it? you made. It was a, <laughs> maybe um, Citizen Can Four, could it have been that? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was like, <laughs> it was good enough 
to make me want to Shazam it from a television show. <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, rolling down here today. Oh, man, really my pleasure. 